this magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 as our text. Romans chapter 2. I'm on. You have to shoot me up a little bit. All right, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity and this privilege that we have to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that you have given us. We're asking, Father, this morning that you would speak to us through the truth of your word that through the person of the Holy Spirit, that you would open up our minds that we may understand, that you would give us ears that we might hear, and that your word might be that two-edged sword that, that changes the way we think, changes the way we live, because we've been under your truth. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we started this dialogue several weeks ago in chapter 1 when the Apostle Paul gave us this statement in verse 15. In verse 15, he says to the church at Rome that I am eager to share the gospel with you. And then he began to tell them why he was eager to share this gospel with them. If you'll remember back in verse 16, he told them that I'm eager to share this gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then he says in verse 17, I'm eager to share this gospel with you because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in verse 18, he shared with us and with them, I'm eager to share this gospel with you because in it, the wrath of God is being revealed on all ungodliness of men. And so we spent from chapter eight or chapter one, verse 18 to chapter one, verse 32, unpacking that idea of what and how God's wrath was being revealed on unrighteousness of men, not in the future, but in this moment, in the present, 
in Paul's present and in our present. And Paul, as he unpacks this for us, makes it very clear that all of humanity is without excuse before God by virtue of natural revelation because they know enough about God to offer worship to God, yet they refuse to acknowledge Him as God. And they begin to worship idols. And they begin to turn upside down the natural order of God's created things. And so God, if you remember, turns them over. He turns them over to their own lust. And turning them over to their lust causes them to go deeper into idolatry and deeper into suppressing the truth about God. And so God turns them over to vain passions. And vain passions lead them to turn upside down God's created order as it relates to sexuality and human relationships. And then God turns them over, he says, to a debased mind. And turning them over to a debased mind perverts the way they think. And they begin to live in all manner of evil, as he tells us in the latter part of chapter 1. And he gives us this vice list that people who are in this state continually live in. But when we come to the end of chapter 1, those who were in the audience, in particular the Jews who were in the audience, specifically the unrepentant Jews who were in the audience, would shout a hearty, Amen, Paul. Because those Gentiles are just like you described, and they deserve for God to pour his wrath out on them. And then Paul does something uh, quite interesting. I don't know if you guys remember in 2012 when uh, the Republican National Convention was going on and Clint Eastwood was asked to come and speak. And if you remember that event, Clint Eastwood, as he walked to the podium, he had an empty chair brought up and sat beside the podium. And he began to dialogue with that empty chair, which represented then-President Barack uh, Hussein Obama. Well, Paul does a very similar thing in chapter 2. He uses this diatribal type of uh, speaking. He, 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 in essence, steps up to the podium, and he has an imaginary opponent who steps up to the podium next to him. And from here on out... Paul begins to dialogue with this imaginary opponent, which I believe, as we'll bear out in Scripture, is the unrepentant Jew. To put it in terms we can understand, this is the moralist, right? This is the religious but lost person. And Paul begins to dialogue with this person, and he would say to them, not so fast, my friend, because you too, are just as guilty as this Gentile that we've been talking about. So this morning, that's what we're going to unpack is, is this idea that Paul is condemning this moralist. And so the question up front and the question at the end of this thing is, do you fit this description of this person that Paul is talking to? Are you perhaps that religious but lost? Are you that one who sits in the pew every Sunday and when Paul is condemning those who have rebelled against God and you say, yes, those out there deserve God's wrath. 
while the whole time you in here are just as guilty. And so we're going to unpack that this morning by looking at three headings. Three headings. The first one is the moralist identified. The second one is going to be the moralist uh, indicted. And then we're going to see the moralist Im- implicated. So we got to identify who this moralist is. Now I've laid out my cards on the table. I believe it's the unrepentant Jew that Paul is beginning to talk to in chapter two. But Paul gives us some clues in this text. And if we'll look through our Bible and see these clues, I think we can begin to see that this is the case, that Paul is talking to this unrepentant Jew. The first thing that happens, you remember that imaginary person that he begins to talk to. If you see in your Bible in chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one, Paul begins this discussion in chapter two and he addresses a particular person. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. So the question that we have to answer is, who is this O man that he is talking to? And he uses the same phrase in chapter two, verse three. Do you suppose, O man, that you will, you who judge will in essence escape the judgment of God? So who is this O man? Not only does he use that phrase, he also uses the, the personal pronoun you as he describes this person. And about 13 times in this text, if you just follow through real quick, he starts in verse Chapter one, chapter two, verse one, therefore you, and he's talking about this man. So who is this you? Who is this man? Every one of you who judges, and again, in chapter one, he says, uh, whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice these same things. Then he says in verse uh, three, do you, again, O man, you who judge, and then he says, you do them yourselves. And he says, do you think you will escape the judgment? Verse four, he says, and do you presume on the riches of God? And do you, uh, lead, or do you think that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then in verse five, he says it three more times in, in the sense of your, your hard and impentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the kingdom. So who is this you? Who is this man that Paul is talking to? Well, there's another clue in the text. I think Paul helps us to understand who he is addressing. In verse two, Paul uses the personal pronoun we. And so Paul interjects himself into the discussion. And he says in verse two, We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Well, I think the implication Paul is making is, I am a Jew, and this man that I am addressing is a Jew, and we Jews definitely know that what these people are doing demand the wrath of God. Why? Because the Jews not only have natural revelation, They also have specific revelation. They have God's word that was written to them by the hand of God that was given to them through the mouths of the prophets that came along. So they knew. And so I think Paul makes it very clear that he's talking about these Jews who are unrepentant, who refuse to believe the truth of God as it relates to Jesus Christ as Messiah. And he bears this point out, I think, even more clearly at the end of this chapter, which we'll get to in uh, a few weeks. Well, this is really in the middle. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 
Just look down there with me and see how Paul begins to specifically state this idea or bring this idea of Jews in with Gentiles. And he makes this comparison uh, between the two. In verse 9, he begins, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And you remember when we were back in verse 16, he made this statement. That the gospel is the power of God, the salvation for the Jew, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He brings that same language into this dialogue as well. He says this, there's going to be great tribulation for every being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Paul is letting this Jewish audience know, those those Jewish moralists, what we would think of as the scribes and Pharisees, in the Gospels, Paul is saying to you, to them, wait a minute, you're just like these people that I've talked about in chapter one. And it's even more egregious for you because not only do you have special or general revelation, you have the very words of God and you ought to know better, but you still refuse to believe the truth of God. They are the moralist. They are the religious, but lost. So again, the question is, what about you today? Are you the religious but lost? Are you the one who comes to church every single Sunday? You go through the motions. You know the word. You know what it says. But you have yet to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And you're quick to point a finger at those out there. And all the while... The finger is pointing back at you because you do the same things these people do. And you might say, wait, wait a minute, just like these Jews, I haven't committed adult, um, idolatry, right? I don't have statues and idols in my house. You might say, wait, wait a minute, I'm not involved in homosexuality and, and all the practices that are related to that. But don't forget what Paul said at the end of chapter 1. They were filled with all sorts of evil and malice. Have you ever looked on a woman or a man to lust after them? And didn't Jesus say that in our heart we've already committed the act of adultery? Have you ever hated someone without cause? Didn't Jesus say in our heart we've already committed the act of murder? Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? No matter how insignificant. Then haven't we mistreated our brother by taking things that are not ours? Paul's point is... Not just those out there, but every person ever born on planet earth, unless they bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they are all under the wrath of God. 
And they need a Savior to change their destiny. That's the identity of this person that he's talking to. And then he goes on to indict them rather clearly in our text. He says, first, they're under the same condemnation. Because what did he tell these people in chapter 1 that were under the wrath of God because they were suppressing the truth and the knowledge of God? They said, you stand before God without excuse. General revelation is enough to condemn every man before a holy God because we know enough about who he is and what he is that we ought to bow down and worship him. And then he turns the table and says to these Jews who say, yes, they are without excuse. And Paul says, wait a minute, you are without excuse. And then what he said in the very first verse, therefore you have no excuse, O man. And I would say you have even less of an excuse because you ought to know better. Because Moses on the Mount Sinai received the commandments of God written on tablets of stone because you entered into covenant with God. Because God has made himself particularly known to you throughout history. He walked you through the, the, the desert. He walked you in the wilderness. He provided for you all along the way, even though you were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. God took care of you and led you into the promised land. He performed many miracles before your eyes. You have been given more revelation than anyone on planet earth. And before we think that that doesn't apply to us, how much light has been given to those who have lived in America all of their life? There's not a place on planet Earth in the history of nations that has had the freedom and the ability to freely portray the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I have benefited from that. I know today that that ability is slowly slipping away from us and that freedom is slowly slipping away from us. But still, there's not a place on planet Earth that the light of the gospel has shone any brighter. So we, as Americans, we, as people who have lived our entire lives in this country, are without excuse if we don't bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We are this moralist who thinks that we are okay because we don't do all of these things that were listed. But it only takes one for us to be guilty of all. And Paul is telling them, you are just as guilty because you might not have done everything, but you have done some of the things, and that's enough to condemn you before a holy, righteous God because he demands perfection from us. And the only way that can happen in our life is if Jesus Christ comes in and changes us so that we can, in fact, live as God requires us to live. So that brings the question again, to me, anyway, as I think about this text and what that means for us. Because there's this idea in, the, in our world, there's this idea among some Christian circles that, man, all you got to do is raise a hand. 
All you've got to do is say a magic words in a prayer. All you got to do is get your name on a roll, get your ticket punched, and you're good to go. And then you can go out and you can just be and do and live however you want to live. And hey, you got a straight shot to happen. Well, I'm here to tell you, and Paul's going to bear this out in Romans. That is the most unbiblical concept that there is. Look, I'm not telling you we're working our way to heaven. But I am telling you that when Christ Jesus comes into your heart, when you bow your knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior, it changes how you live. It will cause you, the bent of your heart will be, to do what God has asked us to do. To live the way God has asked us to live. And if that is not reflected in our life, then there's something spiritually wrong with us. And in that light, we need to do what Paul has asked us to do to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are in the faith. Because true repentance and true regeneration brings true and lasting change in our life. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. In a few weeks, we'll be in Romans chapter 7, and we know we're not going to be perfect. You don't even have to go to Romans chapter 7 to know you're not perfect, right? If you're a follower of Christ, all I got to do is go ask my wife, and she'll say, no, you're not perfect. Trust me, right? All I got to do is look in, my, look in the mirror. I know that I'm not perfect. But like Paul, the desire of my heart ought to be when I come to faith in Christ, in spite of the imperfections that I drag along with me in this flesh, the bent of my heart is to do the will of God. And when I don't do that, when I sin and I fail, then it ought to drive me to my knees and ask God to help me not to do that again to give me the ability to overcome those temptations that plague me, those temptations that drag me into the mire and the muck. And it's only through Christ that I can do that. So this moralist is just as guilty because they do the very same thing that the rest of those that they point their finger at do as well. And they stand before God without an excuse. And here's the most egregious thing, the implication uh, that comes from what Paul says to them. If we read in our text in verse 4, Paul says to this person, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Some translations may have goodness and long-suffering. But do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness or his goodness is meant to lead you to repentance. And the idea is that these people presume that because of their heritage and because God has, in spite of their sinfulness and rebellion and stiff-necked lifestyle that they have a straight ticket in. They don't have to bow the knee. They don't have to believe the gospel because of the, 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 the circumcision that they have, because of their heritage in Abraham, 
that they're okay. And Paul is reminding them that you have to come to Christ the same way the Gentile has to come to Christ. God's kindness to you is meant to drive you to repentance, to turn from your sin, and to turn to Jesus Christ. And that, that word kindness or goodness is it's akin to, if you will, a, a parallel to that would be what we have read on Wednesday nights in the Psalms over and over again. You remember, we see that term, his, um, his long suffering or his uh, never ending or never dying love. The Hebrew word is hesed, but it's God's never-ending love for his people in particular, but then there's this general love for humanity in a broader sense that God is allowing men to continue to live on this world without snuffing them out in order that people can be driven to Christ and come to repentance. And I think the scripture bears that out in in many places. One place is Titus uh, chapter 3 and verse 4. The Bible says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior has appeared. What is this kindness that they are presuming upon? They're rejecting the Messiah and they're saying we can have what the Messiah would bring to the Gentiles, but we don't need to believe in Christ because we are the Jews. If anybody's going to make it, we're going to make it. But this ultimate kindness is demonstrated by God through the coming of Jesus Christ. And this long suffering of God, Peter bears this out in 1 Peter chapter 3 and, and verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patient wait, patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What was going on in Noah's day? God looked down at earth and he says, man, there is nothing but wickedness in the heart of humanity. But he didn't strike them dead in that moment, did he? For 120 years, Noah patiently built an ark, an ark that would save those who entered it when God shut the door. And for 120 years, God long suffered or suffered long with the wickedness of humanity before he brought his wrath to bear. And eight people ended up in that ark. How many years of long suffering has God allowed to go on to this date? Because every one of us apart from Christ, deserve to be killed in our sleep. We deserve to be squashed under the wrath of God. But God, in his long suffering, has waited and waited and waiting, and as we'll see in just a moment, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As a matter of fact, Peter says that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fill his promises as some count slackness or slowness, but is patient toward us. Some translations have long suffering toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Hopefully you remember the context of what's going on in Peter's letter there. Folks have come and says, hey, Christ said he's coming back. And it's been, you know, a minute uh, here. And, uh, he hadn't come yet. Now, this is still first century, right? Still first century. 
when Peter wrote this letter. And people are saying, hey, he hadn't come back yet. And that's when Peter says, hold up. God's going to keep his promise. The only reason he is tarrying right now is because he is long-suffering with the evil in this world so that as many people as will will come to repentance and faith. So while we will celebrate with what John says in Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus, right? As believers, we long for the day for Christ to come. But we also ought to say, Father, thank you for waiting one more day. You know why? Because you and you and you and you and me, every one of us has someone that we care about deeply who has yet to bow their knee to Christ. And if he came today, that person's fate would be sealed. But God, in his patience and forbearance and kindness and long-suffering, is waiting so that many more will come to repentance. Well, that ought to light a fire under us, hadn't it? What ought we to do? We ought to do what God has told us to do in the Great Commission. We ought to, as we go, be about making disciples. We ought to be about sharing, as Paul, Peter says, this reason for the hope that lies within us because it's the same hope that will change the eternal destiny of those that we know and love. So while we're eager for Christ to come, we ought to thank God that he's waiting because that means someone else has another day to give their life to Christ and reap the same reward that we will reap because we bowed our knee to Jesus Christ. There's another interesting thing that's going on in this text. Paul tells us in verse 18, you remember, I'm eager in verse 15 to share the gospel to you. And the, one of the reasons that he's eager to share is because the wrath of God is, present tense, is being revealed against all ungodliness of man. Well, there's a sh- not a shift, but there's a, there's a broader concept of God's wrath that is introduced in chapter 2. Not only is God's wrath right now being poured out on all ungodliness of humanity by turning them over to lust and vain passions and a debased mind. But he says to this man that he is talking to in this text, he says, because, in verse 5, of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself, not just in the present, but on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul broadens the scope. He says there is a wrath of God that's being poured out on humanity right now. And we see it in the magnification of our uh, debauchery in this world the magnification of our depravity that we see all throughout humanity. 
But he says, there is coming a day when God is ultimately and finally going to pour out his wrath on all of humanity. And he could almost imply in that passage because of what he says later on, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So there is coming a final and ultimate day of wrath that God is going to pour out on all unrighteousness of man. We read about that in Revelation 20, don't we? You remember that text starting somewhere in about verse 15? When God says that the rest of the dead, right, were raised up. And then there were books that were opened. And then there was another book that was opened. And he says, every man was judged, every person was judged by what was written in the books. Well, next week, we're going to start in verse 6 in our text. And verse 6 is going to begin to unfold for us that God's going to judge people according to their works. You understand that. Judgment is always by works. And when we stand before a holy, righteous God, he's going to look at those books Man, you ought to search that term out, that concept out in Scripture. There's clear evidence that God is writing a book. Matter of fact, clear evidence that he has two books. And every man, woman, and child that stands before God, he's going to look at those books of the record of our works and bear judgment. Here's the kicker. If all he does is look at those books of works, the only thing he can say is guilty. Guilty. Because there's not a one of us who by the deeds that are recorded in those books can make ourselves righteous before holy God. Because the very best that we can do is filthy rags. But thank the Lord there's another book open, right? And the Bible says it's the book of life. And at the end of Revelation chapter 20, he says everyone whose name is not written or not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, that causes me to ask this question. How do I make sure that my name is in the book of life because I don't want to be cast into a lake of fire. I don't want to suffer God's wrath for all of eternity. That's what I deserve. That's what I ought to get. But I don't want that. I don't want justice. I want mercy and I want grace, right? How can I do it? Well, Paul's already told us in our text. What did he tell these Jews? What is God's kindness, his long-suffering, and his patience and forbearance? What is it meant to do? It is meant to bring us to repentance that leads to salvation. How do we get our name in the Lamb's book of life? We repent and we believe in Christ. It's not enough to try to check off your tick marks of good deeds. It's not enough to go down a moral code and say, hey, when I look at this, I'm pretty good. 
And I'm not like those out there. I'm, I'm pretty decent. So I think I'll be okay. No, you will not be. You are without excuse. The only thing that will save you and save me from the wrath of God is to repent of our sinfulness, to change our mind about the way we think about who we are and who God is, and then throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ, who did everything that was necessary to appease God's wrath and cover over our sin. That's our only hope. Paul's telling that to these Jews. He's telling that to these Gentiles. And guess what? If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. And he's just said the same thing to both of them. Without Christ, you are without excuse and you're guilty before God. And your only hope for Jew or Gentile is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the question before us today. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you, have you gotten your name on a Sunday school roll or a church membership roll? I'm not asking you if, you if you faithfully come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. I'm not asking you those things. I'm asking you, have you obeyed the command of God to come to faith in Christ by bowing your knee to him as Lord and Savior? That's what the gospel is. It's not God begging and pleading. It's God commanding you and commanding me to bow our knee to Jesus Christ. Have you done that today? And the second question is, does your life reflect that you have done that? And I can't answer those questions for you. Only you can. But today, if the answer to both of those is no, you don't have to leave here that way. Because God can save you. God can change you. And if it is that you have bowed the knee to Christ, and maybe there are besetting sins in your life that continually plague you. Well, guess what? We have an advocate, and his name is Jesus Christ. We can go to him, and we can ask him to help us and strengthen us in those areas. And he will do it. So I'm going to give you a few moments here to be obedient to the Lord. If you need to come give your heart and life to Christ, then we'll show you how to do that. Maybe today you just need to become and be a member of this church. Maybe you need to be baptized because you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Whatever it is, maybe you just need to come pray for somebody that you know who needs Christ today. The altar will be open, and I'll be down front to pray with you and to pray for you if you need that.